This Prop Talk recording is a news and opinion product that is the property of Original Prop Blog LLC, all rights reserved. Original Prop Blog LLC is not responsible for any statements or opinions expressed by the guests of this program. Live on tape from the OPB studios in Northern California, it's Prop Talk. Brought to you by the Original Prop Blog, we're making analog connections across the world. Each podcast features one-on-one chats with special guests to discuss the hobby of collecting original movie props and costumes. The Original Prop Blog is the original source of news, information, and opinion about authentic popular culture artifacts and memorabilia from film and television. Now, let's join our host, Jason DeBorg. <laughs> kind of like we're doing a mini show. Yeah, it's the pre-show. So you ready to get going? Yep, I'm ready. Okay, so welcome. Yeah, we're going to kind of get a little, not goofy or whatever, it's a little, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of like a motor, you have to prime it once in the beginning to get me in the... Yeah. Leave <laughs> in the zone, you got to leave him alone. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, welcome to Prop Talk. And today I have a special guest to the show um, here to talk about what is obviously the highest profile lot in the Christie's South Kensington auction um, scheduled for later this month, um, which is the Darth Vader costume. And obviously, given the rarity of any original Star Wars proper costume, let alone a a Darth Vader costume, um, as well as a lot of discussion and analysis in the uh, about the piece in the collecting community, tons of mainstream media coverage. Um, I thought it'd be interesting to um, have a discussion with the consigner of the piece, who is Ed Zein. Um, welcome to Prop Talk. Thank, thank you for having me, Jason. Oh, you're welcome. And I thought this would be, you know, we, we spoke briefly last week, and um, I thought it'd be a good opportunity for Ed to... Um, reach a really wide audience with more information about the costume that um, kind of goes above and beyond the catalog description. And I also wanted to emphasize at the beginning that the opinions expressed are solely those of my guest, Ed Zine, and not um, Christie's. So, Ed, welcome to the program. Thank you. And let's talk about the um, Darth Vader costume just kind of as an overview overview to begin with because some of the listeners might might not even be um, aware that this is being offered for sale um, so this costume is attributed to um, the second Star Wars film in the original trilogy the Empire Strikes Back so do you want to kind of give an overview about this costume and um, what components are included which ones were made for production and you know kind of give a general overview about it pieces, the face mask, the dome, the shoulder pads or shoulder armor, and the shin guards are the original production ones. Uh-huh. And the leather vest, the leather sleeves, cotton jerkin, and the leather trousers are possibly production. Uh, and the all the other pieces are second generation, which are all, uh, which would be touring, second generation. Okay. And then well, that, would be the, that would be, I'm sorry, <laughs> that would be the gloves, uh, the boots, 
the chess piece, the chess box, the belt box. Uh, so the chess box, belt box, the cod piece, the gloves, the boots, uh, the capes. Um, some people make reference to the chain or whatever. I mean, everybody has their own, I guess, opinions on different things. But just to clarify that those are, um, you know, those are all second generation touring. Right. Um, one thing that I always think is important is to define terms that are kind of relevant to the hobby. And it's particularly important, I think, with this. Um, so my own definition of, quote, original is something that was made for the production with the intention of being used in the production. And that's kind of regardless of whether it's actually used, worn, or filmed, but it was just basically made, you know, during the production with the idea of using it or even if it's a backup or something. Um, so the other... Um, I agree with that. I, I agree that that terminology is correct for original. Yeah. And you've kind of already kind of gone through which ones were um, original. And that really doesn't go into whether it was filmed or not. I think in a lot of cases it might be sort of impossible to know just given the nature of the costume and because um, it's black. So it makes it really hard to identify... Um, you know, when you've got a black shiny object trying to match things up on it. Whereas I know like with um, Stormtrooper costumes, we've seen a lot of Stormtrooper helmets um, being auctioned and sold into the marketplace. And those are very different because it's white and they might have scratches. And I know some of those from A New Hope have been actually screen matched. Um, are Have you found that there's any, quote, tells um, with the Vader costumes that are distinctive, like from film to film to film? Um, and how do you sort of fit in this costume that, that's going to be sold with um, what research that you've done? Uh, I guess the best way I could classify that, each movie, you know, when you get into it, who's to say how many molds were made, how many Vader heads were made, were those Vader heads are retweaked or recast? Did one come out that they didn't like, they didn't use? When they made them, did they take extensive, you know, you know, sort of a a lot of work and a lot of usage during filming? You know, and sometimes you can take a look and figure out what traits, what are the main traits that carry over? What we do know is that there's a flat spot on the side of the helmet that seems to be very pronounced, which carries over. Uh-huh. When you're trying to screen match something, it is very hard. Not, and we are not saying that this is screen used because we cannot make that determination. It's a very hard determination. Right. Especially, like, as you said, something in black to try to, you know, again, there's a lot of variables that come into play, and that would be lighting composition. That would be the angle, how far back. In order to screen match something, you'd have to have that item side by side or in the same environment, in the same setting, to say yes. Because sometimes the light can throw things on or off something and make you think you see something when you don't. Right. And that's, that's where a lot of people come in and say, well, I didn't see that on the screen, or that doesn't make any sense, or this is down to the most minute detail. Again, Don Post, who is going to be a part of this, which is great, he is one of our, my close friends and been there since... You know, since I had, you know, my illness of what I've gone through. And he, as a very intelligent designer, prop designer and prop maker and making molds, he understands that no two Vaders will ever be alike because they're man-made. 
and that during that, sometimes when they make molds, that, and I like the saying that he said to me, which I talked to you earlier about, is that like you can give four chefs the same recipe, but the meal will still come out different because mm -hmm. it's each individual's own interpretation of it and how they apply that to each thing. And that's kind of what's consistent with that is, you know, each person. And then when it keeps coming out of the mold, as you keep pulling it, when you use these silicone molds, so many can come out and then you start losing the nuances out of it because it can only take so many. And then they go on to, you know, like Don said, sometimes it would be indicative. They would take so many, a few out of a mold, and then they would do another mold because that mold, it's more work to sand it down so they just recast and do another mold. Mm -hmm. As you can see, how certain traits you may see on one may not be there. Little things that you would pick up. So I'm sorry, <laughs> I hope that answered the question completely. Yeah, so, um, so in the first movie, A New Hope, um, did they use the same mold or source from A New Hope's Vader helmet that they used in Empire, or did they re-sculpt it? On my discussions with Don Post, um, I mean, again, these are, this is just my, what I, we all take facts in, but what we try to do at the end of the day is try to research. Right. Instead of eating from a podium and saying, that's wrong, that's wrong. Let's promote good dialogue, which is what we're doing, and trying to get to the bottom of it, which is in a respectful, professional way. Right. And you have to look at it from both sides of the coin and not just say it's completely wrong for whatever reason or completely right. You have to do your homework. And I felt that I have done my homework of confirming and figuring out what is what. Now, for me, what I understand from my view and what I've seen is that I know that so many homeless were made for a new hope and that I don't know how many survived there. I don't know if it was like two or three. This is just, I can only go by what I see for factual data online. Right. Usually a little, I think there was an LA Times article that had discussed this um, from Comic-Con about the one that EFX is doing about how there were three and Don Post got one, something about Rick Baker and that they did a recast. From my understanding is that the Empire Helmet is a recast from one of those, okay. a repeat. And what they did was, in A New Hope, they did a three-tab system on the top, and during filming, what they did was, that helmet was shifting all over the place. It wasn't set in. It had a lot of movement. Mm -hmm. And when they did Empire, they had retooled and retweaked at the top, and as they did the top, they what they did was they recalibrated, redid the whole front of it, put it in, and got rid of the three-tab system, and then what they did was they also burned back the mask to compensate for the conduit or connector at the top because there was no bite or nothing onto it. So that's why they sort of brought back the mask more to compensate for the connector on the top because there was nothing to hold onto it. it. And then they would put the, the BSF screws on the top and to hold it into place and lock it in. So, I mean... Does that help out or no? Yeah, yeah, just because I'm pretty unfamiliar with, with those kinds of um, details and, and just how, you know, I, it seems like there's a lot more information out there about um, the Stormtrooper costumes and helmets. Um, obviously, those have been in the news and, like I said, been offered for sale a lot more, but there really hasn't been a whole lot of um, Darth Vader um, material that people have had real hands on um, examination of or 
Um, I've seen one in a private collection, the one that Profiles sold, you know, years and years and years ago. Um, and I think I saw the one that um, is yeah. in the Out of This World exhibit. Um, but other than that, I've, I, I think those are the only two I've seen. And I think I think the one that Profiles sold years ago was from Empire, if I remember correctly. But that was many years ago. So, Right. Uh, you know, everybody has their own, you know, like I say, there's so many in the community that are saying that the one that was sold that, you know, George Lucas put his name to, that's completely wrong, and therefore that's not correct. I mean, who is anybody to doubt the word of Empire? Right. The, same, the same traits that are on that one are on this one. So does that mean George Lucas is wrong? No. Right. I guess in the context, that's how you have to look at it, is that something that is man-made, you know, it's not an assembly line for certain things that it comes out. This is a man-made item. And, it's in, again, it's open to each individual that makes and creates these. There's a little slit that I see on the right side of the mask coming down. I've seen that on only originals. The ones that I've seen, who knows if that's a telltale sign of a person's... Maybe they did that when they were trying to put the brass inserts and then trying to put the screws in with the, the bullet sensors... Or the tusks. I don't know what you call those things. A little. Yeah, the billets, I think I've seen them called. The little silver. I think they call it. I call in the UK, which is nice. Uh, we say aluminum, and say aluminium. The <laughs> aluminium. Um, you know, it makes it sound. I never understood that. So uh, this past year, I was like, what's aluminium? And <laughs> it's a learning curve. I'm learning a lot. And it's actually a nature way of saying it instead of saying aluminum. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I've learned is how those little billet sensors, how they attach with the thread that goes into the brass insert. And maybe that, I don't know what that line represents, but I was told that that might possibly be a signature. Maybe it's something to break up to show a little definition, a little separation. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's used as uh, sort of the person in the plastering shop who created it. Maybe that's their little signature to the piece. Yeah. Now, these, these were made out of fiberglass, correct? Correct. Uh, okay. The general makeup and construction, and I guess to usually get to the point, people always say, what was Andrew Ainsworth's involvement? His involvement was only in my discussions with him, was pure and simple, the genetic makeup and the construction of this material. He had no other comments as he said that he would not comment on a product that he didn't work on or has anything to comment on the character. He can only talk about what he sees, the genetic makeup, and if that was indicative of the 70s. And that was only his involvement, no more, no less, which was the BSF 732nd screws. Those are, I think he said, pre-CAD or pre-metrification, very old type of screw on there. Hmm. The fine weave stitching, that what the studios did, they used fine weave stitching. And then they used a, um, and Don Post actually which is great. I talked to Don Post on this because he's seen originals to comment on this. My talks with him last week on it were that you use, especially in the dome, that they use a fine weave stitching and then they use a, a resin and they put a dye or pigmentation into the resin, which is like a black color, so that when it cures, it gives like a matte black in the back of it. Mm-hmm. The light would reflect behind that they didn't want it casting back so therefore you would see the face mask and not the behind the dome so whether that was a well thought out process during filming I don't know 
I can only give you my discussions with people and kind of like, I think we all come to a determination together, bringing in, you know, these decisions and what we come to of what people say that have worked in the industry and what their feelings are. Right. So well, that, that's interesting because now that I'm thinking about it, wasn't there another Darth Vader helmet that was a quote dueling helmet that was sold that had um, clear you, parts of the mask so um, right. David Prowse could see through it? Oh, oh, you mean um, you're talking about the stun helmet, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now the stun helmet that's a that's a highly modified hero, and that helmet is I mean who's who know who knows if that's one that was just again uh, a beat up or a crappy helmet that nobody wanted that they just took it and retweaked it because it wasn't going to be a close up shot for the camera, mm-hmm. but what they did was that was Bob Anderson's stunt helmet, and when you look at it. And I've gotten into discussions. Again, you have to know the type of material used. And what I've found over the past, you know, in detail for those who've worked on it and the people that from ICI, which is the Perspex company that created the lenses, which is 3mm, what they used, I believe it's 3mm, I think 3M is 3M. And when you look at the Paul Allen one, the eyes are an old color, which is a bronzy color. It's called a 504. Mm-hmm. And then the cheeks and the neck area, they actually replaced that with Perspex so that Bob Anderson would have a greater viewing point to see because it was a very, not a highly illuminated set in the scenes he was doing. So he needed greater visibility to do the dueling scenes with Mark Hamill. Okay. So the color that is on the one in which I have, because we got swatches from the old ICI Perspex, that is called a 912. Hmm. And from looking at the inside of the helmets with the high-def images that were given from, you know, a prior auction house, we can look at them. The colors are indicative to the 912 in the cheeks and in the neck area, which is like a kind of like a grayish color, if you will. Uh-huh. And at different camera angles, when you look at it, you take a picture of it, it looks black. It's the way the light, the lighting composition comes off it. Right. But when you have a closer look at it, you can see it's of a lightish gray color. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it's, what it's amazing is the more we delve into the process, greater detail comes to light, which is what's the material used. And then you can take a look and start to bring things together and it all comes together in the sense of like the type of, I didn't know about ICI, Perspex. I think Lucite Technology is the one now that took over for Perspex. But the old swatches were the ICI Perspex. And, you know, we sent those swatches, which were two Christie's, um, those swatches there, you know, to compare and to have the detailing of that too. Mm-hmm. So have you ever heard about that, the Perspex in there yourself? Um, just what little I've read, but I don't know any detail about it whatsoever. So that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it would be interesting, which is you take that images and those and put them side by side. Those colors are indicative. And it's amazing that the stunt one, there were a 504 and not a 912. The one for sale at auction has 912 in the eyes. Hmm. There's a 912. The stunt one is a 504. And these colors were back then over 30, almost 30 something years old. So they were around during the making of Empire Strikes Back. Hmm. So 
I think that's the amazing part is that we entertain into, you know, thought provoking dialogue. That, right. You know, it comes to, instead of some people look at it, look at it as, wow, this, we get to see an amazing piece that has gone unseen or untalked about for a long time. Right. It deserves its just place in society of being discussed and talked about and not pushed to the side. Right. So let's talk about how you came into possession of this costume. How did you learn about it? How did you find it? Um, when when did you get it? Uh, I got these pieces uh, back in 2003. I um, actually got a touring one and you know, one which is being sold now through the auction, and which is through NJ Farmer Associates Limited, or which is... Kind of goes by the name at that point, Farmer Studios. Uh-huh. So, you know, the guy is such a great guy, Nick Farmer, um, such a gentleman, a scholar and a gentleman, very nice guy. And, well, my pursuit, it's almost like how I almost have to go to how it all came about of my pursuit of Vader. Right. You want me to talk about that in a way or no? Yeah, let's, let's talk about that because I know... Um I, we were discussing earlier, you know, I saw you, it was on Good Morning America, right? Yeah. Um, and you have a book, Life and Rewind, and it's about um, overcoming your obsessive compulsive disorder, and you have a really unique um, story. So if, if whatever you're comfortable talking about, you know, I think that would be really interesting because it all kind of um, gives some backstories to how you, you got involved in getting this costume, too. Uh, for me, my how my OCD came into play is that my OCD is based upon traumas. And me at the age of 11, seeing my mother pass away in front of me is something that, you know, caused it. And for me, what I did was I took that and I buried it. And sometimes we either deal with things right away and face our fears then, or what we do is we let this lay dormant inside of us and we don't address it. And for myself, it was my mother seeing her pass away and then my grandmother and then my uncle Tommy in 91. So for me, it was dealing with multiple traumas and it got to the point that later in life, my OCD rear its ugly head and it got to a point where I was housebound for over two years down to 159 pounds that close to passing oh, wow. away. And, you know, it's funny. You live with OCD and people think you're controlling, but you're not. Control is an illusion. We control nothing. Mm-hmm. And that's the one point that, like, people understand is that when you have OCD, that in a time when you need help, your body creates a defensive mechanism in order to deal with things because you don't have a foundation or a structure. And for me... I couldn't comprehend, I couldn't understand what I was feeling and what I was going through. And usually when people pass, families never really embrace that or talk about it. We kind of just go off in our own little worlds because it's too painful to discuss. Mm-hmm. And, me, and me at a young age, I wasn't equipped with the coping skills to learn how to process that, that it's a natural part of life and that it's okay and that my mom's in heaven. Mm-hmm. Me to see her take her last breath it was very hard for me. Yeah. Sorry. Well, sorry. It's funny. Discussion about Vader, all the talks I do about OCD. Yeah. It's very painful because that was my mom. That was my center of my gravity. Right. And to experience that, I sort of, I took all of that, what I felt, and I 
channeled it inside, and I never dealt with it. So for me, as life got on and later, in 92 is when I started to notice it. 94 is when my family started to notice it. And it just kind of started to kind of snowball down from there and the effect of getting worse and worse for me until I got down, I was housebound and over two years and, and down to 159 pounds, only eating four meals in a week. Hmm. And again, it's something that you don't do to yourself. Right. These are things that you're trying to process what you're going through. So for me, what was, and again, I, I like to say, I mean, well, it sounds corny, but I do have to say a thank you to George Lucas, to Star Wars, because if he didn't create Star Wars in his mind of what he did, and bring in this story, and bring in these characters, that's what gave me the ability to forge through my pain. And what I mean by this is that the last positive memory I have of my mom is seeing Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. And that means something so much in my heart. That was a catalyst. That was what gave me the ability to forge through Anytime anxiety would pop up, I would think of that link and that memory. And that's why Darth Vader is special. It's funny, people say is an iconic evil figure that I picked a, <laughs> a word to have. It's <laughs> a positive. But when you look at the symmetry and the beauty of it, it's a shiny black piece and he's a really cool figure. But it was the fact of me sitting with my mom and her hugging me and having that moment. There was no greater feeling. There was nothing... No pillar, nothing in the world could give me that sensation mm-hmm. to, to overcome my OCD. There's nothing out there that could give me the ability to overcome it. That did. Mm. That positive memory of Empire Strikes Back and Darth Vader, and namely on Cloud City and, and through the scenes through the movie, it, it meant something to me. And mm. I actually used that as a, a way of trying to say every time that this, this feeling would come over me, to feel compelled to do my compulsion and rituals by thinking of a, what I did was I, I took a negative and I accentuated it with a positive. Mm-hmm. And I reversed and I flipped the script on my OCD because I let the positive memory help me in the sense where when you're calm and you're relaxed, clarity gives you perspective. Perspective gives you the inner strength to overcome your OCD. Mm-hmm. And when your anxiety levels are high, that's what causes you more to do rituals because you're unsure and that causes you to do counting and checking. You know, and there's three different parameters of OCD. Counting, when you, even numbers are good for some reason. I don't know why odd numbers are bad. And mine got to the point where I was doing things 16,384 times. Wow. You, know, you know, two and two is four, eight, 16, 32, 64, Two thousand and forty eight, what happened was as the demand got higher to satisfy my OCD, the number got higher. Hmm. So therefore I found myself, you know, it took me seven and a half to ten hours to just walk from four feet away from my bedroom to the bathroom. And therefore it got to a point where, you know, I lived as a prison within my own mind, a prison within the walls of the downstairs basement that I lived. And I lived a very isolated life, no human contact. And it's funny, through all my sickness, what I went through, that was how my connection came with Don Post. Because when I first contacted him in 96, he actually 
I was looking of all people because my thirst for knowledge and stuff like that was ours. I had called Don Paul Studios and his son, Josh, that's a sweetheart. I didn't realize I was speaking to his son, which is in the book, and I didn't realize it lasted <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I was speaking to Don Paul's son, Josh, not just somebody answering the phone. Mm-hmm. He kind of told him what I went through my OCD and that he felt like, because I, I was a genuine person, I cared, that he goes, hold on, and then he actually got his dad on the phone. Wow. And that's how my connection and my my relationship began with Don Post. And Don has been a very positive part of my life because he taught me things as I went through my sickness that kind of like people, they're astronomers and then there's astronauts. Mm-hmm. There are those who speak about it, but those who have actually lived through it. And another phrase that he taught me, which was most people never use the word sort of a disability disabled. Disabled just means unable. Mm-hmm. And unable, unable is not a permanent thing. Right. And people, when you surround yourself, it's funny, all this stuff with Star Wars is actually, it keeps leading me to positive people, people with good hearts that care. And that's how my connection began with Don Post and and so forth and so on. But to get to how it came about, back in 2000, I had gotten a video of a Darth Vader costume. And inside there, I could see these tags that said NJ Farmer Associates Limited. Hmm. And then I saw the address. So, and then in 2001, I got my first computer, a <laughs> compact. <laughs> and I started kind of like schematically going on there, up and down, typing it in until I came across Farmer Studios. And then I contacted... Pharma Studios, and basically from there, just kept in contact with them, and then um, I acquired in 2003, I acquired the Touring, and then the original, and then later on, Farmer uh, had given me uh, COAs to the effect of confirming what I had, because I told them I needed something for my insurance company, you know, to insure the pieces, and then he sent me that, you know, the COAs and stuff that had it in there, and the documentation. So, now, I I had actually never even heard of Farmers until I read the auction catalog description. What what exactly does that company do? Um, they do, I think, theme park stuff and everything like that. And uh, I mean, I can sort of um, Nick Farmer how he came into this and his role. If you can bear with me here, sure. Um, under his resume, what is Farmer? How he came as joined the UK toy manufacturer Pallet Toy Limited. Pallet Toy, which is, I believe, the subsidiary of General Mills, late toy division, which was hence Kenner. Right. So they, that's their Kenner toy version or whatever. Yeah, I, have, I remember Pallet Toy because I used to collect the Kenner figures, and I remember the UK version. It didn't say Kenner. It said Pallet Toy. So, so that Palatoy, rings a bell. <laughs> <laughs> so Kenner is Pallet Toy then. And basically he spent seven years marketing, license, exporting, branding, leading toys, and in 76, an obsession with having his own business resulted in the formation of Farmer Studios, which what he calls it today is Farmer Studios, and since I've known him. But it, back in the day, it was called N.J. Farmer, which is Nicholas J. Farmer Associates Limited, mm-hmm. which you would see in his tags. And Farmer Studios you know, primarily serve visitor attractions, exploratoriums, museums, theme parks, and major retailers. And then basically... As he branched off and did his own thing, it was the fact that 
because he had the connection with Palatoy, he had landed the account, which was to create touring promotional pieces. As we can see how it all lines up, it's it's kind of who you know, because he used to work for Palatoy, that is how he landed that, which was, I'm sure his connections there, right. to, to get the account, which was, he got an original Darth Vader costume uh, under instruction from Lucasfilm UK to make um, mold and patterns for duplicate costumes, which are second generation costumes, for touring promotional purposes. Hmm. So basically the touring costumes were made outside of the production then? Correct. That okay. is correct. Because I never knew that. Because I saw, when I was a kid in 1980, I saw Darth Vader, <laughs> quote Darth Vader, at a Mervyn store you know, in California. And actually I had posted photos of it um, on, on the original prop blog. So all those costumes, the touring costumes, which I know is Vader and what other ones were there? Were there some stormtroopers too or no? Yeah, I don't know either. All I know is I saw Darth Vader. So those were actually made post-production by companies outside of Lucasfilm, basically. Yeah. Well, see, the, the difference of that, outside of the studio, but when something is made under direction and under instructions, then that's authorized by them to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what you have to ascertain. Is it authorized? And Nick Farmer was authorized by Lucasfilm UK to create these duplicate costumes as he got an original costume. Okay. So then he made some of the touring costumes then? Yes. Okay. I mean, I have three to compare it. I know I, I have one. Um, I know one of a gentleman, you know, the video which we have um, that works in that the same circle of, you know, the community. He has one and another one that Farmer had sent me all documentation and other things to it. They're all consistent. I, what I was told is that Farmer, as he created them, uh, that there's a row of pleated stitching and that what they did was under instruction, they were told to leave one of the row of stitchings out, which I believe made it about an inch and a half gap versus uh-huh. a three-quarter gap. And it goes top to bottom, the stitching. So an original never had stitching, you know, that was a wide gap. An original, when you look on film, you'll always see that. They're all about a three-quarter, you know, the stitching going up and down. Right. So then there should be pretty distinct differences between the touring costumes and the production costumes since they were made by different people under different circumstances. And one's basically a copy of, of the other then. Which is, you know, it's it's second generation. They're still all cast the molds and patterns from originals. They're not just okay. Created. You know what I mean? So they had like an original helmet mold that they used to make touring helmets. Then, for instance. Yes. Okay. Uh, so when we first started the interview, you kind of went through which pieces were quote original or production made, and which ones weren't. So are the other pieces then were they made by Nick Farmer? F- for um, the purpose of touring costumes, the other components of the costume? Yeah, second generation, which that's, that's another way they, they classify it in the industry, a second generation, which is, my understanding, a replica, that's a hard term to use, a replica would be somebody's interpretation of the piece. Right. When you get into an original casting off there, that would be considered a second generation. 
you know, that, that's another way of classifying it. But when it's done under instruction to the letter of the T to be as authentic as possible, then that's become second generation, which was made for touring promotional. Okay. So it's kind of like, I don't know if you take it that way, there's different views on replica and then sort of second generation. How would you interpret replica and second generation? Well, I think for me, there's original and not original. So I would classify second generation. If it wasn't made, you know, during the production for use in the production, then it would fall into the not original um, side, which would, would tech, you know, which would be more in the replica realm, but it's still, um, you know, within that category, I'd obviously put something that was made for touring purposes higher than something that someone made last week in their garage, you know, as a replica of what they see on screen. So, I mean, there's, there's a really wide range of, of classification within that. Well, yeah, my, my understanding is that it's second generation is just, they come from original, they, they come from a casting, which is, you know, you have like a, you know, junior, the third and the fourth and somebody right. kind of like that. <laughs> Doesn't mean it's it's less than what it is, but an original. When you say original production made, comes directly from the set during the filming of the movie, and there's no two ways to misinterpret that because it's designed for the purpose of the film coming from that. Right. And how Farmer's involvement came in from all the discussions that we've had with Farmer, this suit was given because these had to be ready for the premiere of the movie. May 21st of 1980, so that these were made, and as he got this stuff, everything was done early 1980, mm-hmm. to get ready for the premiere of the movie, May 21st, 1980. So obviously, he has to have these in hand to make the molds. Right. It already, to create it and to start making these suits. So you can't just get it in May. You know what I mean? You can't right. get a you can't get these in May to start creating them. You actually have to get it in hand to start making, creating, and, and bringing all these touring suits to get them ready for it. Right. So how, that takes, it takes time to get ready. Yeah. So how did you identify the production made or original components um, as such? Did you compare it to your other touring suit and, and see differences in them? Yes. What, what I notice is below the right cheek, there seems to be divots or potholes. Mm-hmm. And I'll also send you images later to show, but in the ones that I've seen, the divot has been present in them. And this one has stress marks on it. That means molds were made and taken off of this one specifically, which is the larger one. And this head is so much larger than the touring one that I have. It's grander in scale. Mm-hmm. So there must have been sh- shrinkage, fa- shrinkage factors that came into play in during making the mold. Because it's a little bit, the teeth are a little bit narrower, and, you know, the divots are still present. And on the side, which I see in another other farmer ones, is where they burned it out on the back, you can still see that line present. Mm-hmm. And the grills all match up on all farmer ones. They all have the same type grills, the three that I've compared it. Now, this one had different markings, but it was larger in size. And the straps in the back, to the screws on the top, to the connector piece, to the eyes, to the billet sensors, to that little mark that I've seen on the, let's see, the, 
the right side. The one I was telling you about that slit on the side where the tubes come together. Uh-huh. See that present on originals. And little nuances that you pick up, the flat spot on the side of the head, uh, that really didn't come through on the farmer ones. So this one had a flat spot, and that was comparing it to one that was like another one that was used uh, on the flat spot. Everybody in the community seems to know about that flat spot, I guess. Now, was farmers supplied with the little extra components, like, you know, the the mesh behind the grill and the eye lenses and things like that, or is that something that they had to develop on their own to replicate what was used in the Uh, movie? On this mask, the farmer, what he did was, what it is in the center of the, the two eyes, in the sort of the bridge of the nose, if you will, mm-hmm. there is a sort of, on the inside of the mask, when you look, there is a gap in between there. And then what they would do is they would they would create the lenses, and then what they do is they would put like a Bondo-type stuff in there, and then they would recess, push the glasses into it so it would suck it in. What farmer did was, you can see what he did was he popped the lenses out, and then he made a mold from the eyes. Uh-huh. You know, all he did was basically just put two screws and screwed it back in. <laughs> okay. So, and during the process of him making the molds, because there's stress marks, and I talked to, as Andrew Ainsworth commented, I've talked to Don Post on it too, when you use a hard mold to release those out of there, it's very hard. Now, the dome has stress marks on it. And it's indicative at the same point in a hard mold where those stress marks would be to pry it out of the mold in the same spot. So, having said that, on the face mask, on, I believe it's the right side, that there was a crack and a repair to it because it was coming out, you know, some repairs had to be done to the mask because when they were prying it out, it got a crack in there. So they sort of weaved it in a little bit. Mm-hmm. And they took, they sprayed it in and sort of remisted it in on the side, watching it up. Okay. I know that was probably one of the questions I think that. <laughs> and then I've also seen reference to quote Lucasfilm UK. And <clears throat> excuse me, can you tell me a little bit about what this entity was, what they did? Um... As far as what I have come to understand, Lucasfilm UK is the company that Lucasfilm had over there that handled, I guess, production, and, you know, that was their company that they used during there for, you know, the productions of the movies. And then I think after, from what I was told and understand that, you know, the company ceased operations and um, shut their doors. Okay. I don't know how long ago they ceased operations. And then um, I think I read that there's some kind of documentation showing that Lucasfilm UK sent this costume to Nick Farmer? Yeah, the, the documentation. Farmer, we have what Farmer has stated in there. We have him saying from, you know, coming from the set, you know, it comes from Dave Middleton. I don't know if you know who that is. No. You actually seen in the credits, he's a construction storeman while working on The Empire Strikes Back. Okay. Lucasfilm UK authorized and instructed this is out of farmer you know which is fine he went on record and he spoke to Chris and has um, even put another coa recently even add to it sort of an addendum if you will even more on top of it we got to remember the coa i got from him was like almost five years back right 
So what he had to say back then was five years ago. It's not like I just had an epiphany in 2010 of all this. <laughs> you know, it was in 2006. So now fast forward, we're in 2010. He's been, so the documentation, he's on record for saying that this was, it was early 1980 that he got this from the set of Empire Strikes Back. So the construction storm and Dave Middleton, Lucasfilm UK told Dave Middleton to release the costume to Nick Farmer for the purpose of creating mold patterns for duplicate costumes. Mm-hmm. So it closes it during, during production from the set of Empire. Okay, so basically they gave him one original example to use as a model to, to reproduce yeah. um, touring sure. costumes. I always say I, I missed out on the, the capes. <laughs> There's other pieces out there that are still floating around that other people have. Um, oh, really? Yeah, because he got a complete costume, the whole thing. Okay, so you just got some oh. of the better pieces of it. Yeah, yeah, I got the the head, the shoulder, and the um, the shin guards. The shin guards are, um, you know, I went to uh, in June. I'd met, um, I don't know if we could talk about Dave Prowse, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, he put the mask over his head and stuff. And with the touring, what happens is there's shrinkage factors and the size comparison that would not fit his head. And this fit precisely to his large, he has a very large head. Yeah, I've actually met him once, so <laughs> I've noticed that. <laughs> Seven and three quarters. It's, just, uh, it's a very large size head. And, uh, very nice, nice gentleman, very polite. Um, went there and... Um, like I say, he looked at the pieces and, um, you know, I tried that on, um, you know, over his head and stuff and that fit perfect to him. Okay. So, and, and then did Nick Farmer, did they do touring costumes for Jedi or was it just Empire? From what I know, uh, I think he just kept the same ones and they just did the same touring appearances with them. Oh, like this, they just reused the same ones they made. Just reuse the eighties or nineteen eighty. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I, I've seen, you know, as each time goes on, as far as Jedi, I mean, their relationship was from nineteen eighty to eighty five. That was the relationship that uh, Lucas from UK and uh, MJ Farmer had. That was the relationship okay. from nineteen eighty to eighty five. Well, I'm then- sorry. I don't mean, I hope I'm not bouncing all over the place. Oh, no, I am. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, uh, I'm very, I feel very blessed and, and very honored that you're taking the time to talk with me. And it's, in a way, as I talk about Vader, because there were some very harsh comments that people had said, kind of, when you talk about Vader, that's one thing. But when you go and attack somebody over their sickness and comment on it and not understand, listen, again, if I don't bring up something about you that doesn't have to give you the right to comment on something that you don't understand and don't know about right. and the hell and the pain that I went through, it's not for them to pass judgment on. Right. And again, sometimes people think, oh, OCD, and that's, you know, it's something that, which the world now is beginning to understand that traumas, sometimes people have it and they don't realize it. Right. You know, you can walk back and you go back to touch something, you have to go back again. You know, this counting, right. check, reporting. Counting is when you count things, even numbers. Checking is when you need to do something to get that correct release. And hoarding is when you cannot deal with change. So what you do is you hold on to things and you don't release them. Right. 
So, well, I think there's there's more of an awareness today because there's been a lot of documentaries and various TV shows and stuff that kind of show people, you know, how how it affects people's lives. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I think it's uh, through all of this is that which is in the book, you know. Basically, how this all came into play was that back in the day, you know, it's like as I talked to Don Post in 2000, you know, Don Post was given the okay because uh, my doctor at the time said, you know, how much Doc Vader meant to me, and I think that would actually be a good thing to help him. So then, back in the day, Don Post was actually given authorization to create a uh, costume for me. Hmm. But what happened was, I mean, it's in the book. It's in the public domain. Right. What it was is he actually, me and him, we kept going back and forth. And now he goes, it's funny, you can understand. He goes, how what you have in your mind, what you think something is, isn't really it. But like he told me that what he was creating for me back in the day, and me and him went back and forth for a while on it, and then basically that project stopped because what he was trying to recreate for me was Darth Vader from A New Hope. Uh-huh. When I kept looking at it, <laughs> I couldn't understand. I'm like, you know, the, the vent looks a little bit smaller. We're not talking <laughs> little you know, details. We're talking right. A New Hope Vader and an Empire Vader. They're two completely different animals. Right. And when you look at it, one's a little bit more refined, the look, the overall structure and stuff. But, you know, at least as men, we can talk today and say, <laughs> you know, they told me, and Don understood. He goes, so you didn't want the one from a new hope. <laughs> you, <want> the <laughs> so, you know, and I think honestly, it'll be a great thing when you guys do speak. Um, we'll talk to you about it. But basically, that that project was scrapped. And then for a few years, I was just, you know, like I say, when I found out Farmer's name, I just kept in contact with them. And then, um, you know, I acquired the costumes. Yeah. So let me ask you, how did you feel when you saw? Um, Return of the Jedi for the first time where it's kind of like Darth Vader is redeemed and is, you know, heroic basically. How did that how did you, how did you feel about how how the story ended? I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're going a different direction. I like that. That's pretty cool. How I felt it actually it touched my heart because at the end people thought Vader was a, a son of a gun. Right. And he because when he looked he saw the eagle <laughs> that the emperor was doing and he says, I'm not going to allow you to hurt my son. And I think when you watch that, the hair on the back of my neck stands up because yeah. you get to see that's a father protecting his son. Yeah. And, uh, that moves me. That yeah. moves me. You know, how about you? Yeah. I feel the same way. I, I just thought it was, um, I mean, it just shows the, the whole redemption of, you know, I mean, here you have Darth Vader, the most evil, person in the universe and even he can be redeemed right yeah it has good in him absolutely it's uh you know i always love my empire for what empire stands for return of the jedi was uh you know always the original trilogy i just that's special in my place because as you get older the things that are around your childhood will always have that special meaning to you right and for empire just well, it's funny that everyone says, he goes, you, you do realize Empire's like the most ruthless one with <laughs> choking everybody out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I got my kids, they walk around, 
and I go, apology accepted. And then they go, Captain, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, I think what I've got out of this is that, you know, I got to be a part of something special, but all the people that are involved, and again, it's funny, maybe, like I say, you know, Don Post always said to me, he goes, I know I'm sure George Lucas knows who you are, and, you know, because of back in the day, and, you know, with my OCD and stuff, and right. I always have to honor, you have to be honorable, and I have to honor and respect. He created something that actually affected a life, not just about a movie and collectibles, it actually gave me ability to overcome the worst case of OCD ever documented in this country and pretty much the world. Mm-hmm. And I used a positive memory of something that he created. And he's a part of that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's just remarkable. So, you know, I guess all the parts of everything that come into play, like, you know, like I say, these, these pieces, you know, that I've had, you know, I made Lucasfilm, you know, of contact, I made them aware of, you know, me owning these pieces, like, back in 2006. Mm-hmm. So, you know, always, and that's the one thing I respect, always be honorable. Be a man of your word and be respectful. And I've always had great communication with them and great dialogue with uh, Lucasfilm. That's great. So, you know, it's very, when you just tell it from the heart and you be truthful and you be caring and people, you know, how you live your life. Right. You know, everything, all of this comes to light. Like I say, uh, you'll be doing, hopefully you can do that interview with Don Post. It'd be nice because he's now going to put a letter to add into the description because he's heard and seen a lot going around and he wants to kind of, he's there for me because he needs to speak about something that it's what he knows, his ability. And, you know, he's very, very knowledgeable and very understanding as you know, he's he's pretty. I'd say he's second to none. Yeah, he knows the stuff, and he knows it quite well. From you know, all the stuff that he's done. He had the original three PO, the R two D two. You know, there's people that said uh, this isn't right, that isn't right. It is funny how people pick apart things. Right. But unless you're the actual person who creates them, who makes them, and you can understand the process of mold making, then you can really speak. Right. So, uh, but I, listen, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. And uh, I don't know, I feel like there's something we're missing here. <laughs> oh, <laughs> certain, certain scenes, uh, nuances. Uh, as far as the Vader, there's one, I think it's like one hour and 27 minutes in, uh-huh. like 12 seconds. On mine, there's a little divot below the right cheek. And what uh, Don had told me post is that when you create mold, sometimes air pockets get in there. Uh-huh. And what they do is they, you know, as this air pockets, they create little little divots in there. And the one which is an auction now, in that scene, you can kind of see divots. You can't you can't say it's screen use because we don't know. Right. Again, we can never compare it. We've never said it's screen use. But what we can see is that the odds of having that the little divots there below the right cheek, mm-hmm. divots on there, and then also at the end, where Darth Vader says, you know, Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. I am your father. And if you only knew the power of the dark side, but if you look at that helmet, the tooth, looking at the helmet all the way to the right, has a little, 
little roundness to it, which is indicative to the one being sold. Hmm. The, teeth, the teeth spacing is a little bit wider than the rest that you see in the film. Um, you know, the billet sensors, through the movie, they were more mushroom-shaped and a little smaller. In that scene, you can see that they are indicative to the, the wider flare-out around the end of which the one is being sold at auction. So, hmm. you know, I think we're compelled as human beings. As we see reasons why not, let's look for reasons why. Right. How do you feel more of when you're trying to ascertain what a prop is? Do you feel find more reasons instead of kind of saying why it isn't? Look for reasons to confirm it because you may find things instead of having a one skewed vision. Well, I think you have to do a little bit of both. I always tell people my approach is when I first look at something, you know, it's sort of quote inconclusive. You don't know one way or another. And then you either have to prove that it's authentic or prove that it's inauthentic. And both can be a big challenge. Um, so really, I mean, it, it just comes down to a combination of, of the history, the provenance, what you can see on screen, and then weighing that against um, what, whatever the negatives might be. But like, for instance, in this, you know, a, a helmet from Star Wars, um, like we've talked about, you know, there's just so many, they had so many different ones used in the production and, uh, as far as, I don't know, I think it'd be very challenging to actually match that particular style of prop on screen just because it is black and reflective and it's a pretty dark movie in terms yeah. of lighting. Um, so for me, it comes down more to um, the history of it and, and the whole story, which is why I kind of focused more on that in our discussion than the details because you can kind of pick apart details all day long. Um, right. You know, if there were five helmets used or even made to be used, the odds of matching it up, I think, would be challenging. <laughs> I mean, from my understanding, I believe, from when I was talking with Don, seven, possibly eight, the Empire. Okay. And who's to say, as people can say, is what do you have? Who's to say what comes from Empire? If Lucasfilm has used other helmets from, like, say, Star Wars A New Hope, to, you know what I mean, from right. an Empire. Who's to say if something from Empire was just really, you know, a helmet from Empire used in Return of the Jedi? Right. So, you yeah. know. Well, a lot of time has passed since those films were made. So, um, you know, for me, the more compelling thing is, is that you personally have a touring helmet and this helmet, and you do notice distinct differences and given what you've talked about um that basically farmers remade you know these touring pieces independent of the people actually made them from the movies you know using the same materials but there would, would be differences well thank you so much for taking all the time to uh talk to me today and sharing i know a very personal story as well as um sharing information about this helmet you obviously have a wealth of knowledge on the topic so it's uh been very very helpful to uh be able to ask you all these questions all right well take care and uh, i'll talk to you soon okay take care Thank you for listening to our program, Prop Talk. 
For the latest news about the world of original television and movie memorabilia, please visit us online at www.originalpropblog.com.